This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome to the snowsbest.com podcast. Diving deep into the emotions and experiences that mountain life provides for skiers and boarders from first-timers to elite athletes. With your host, Miss Snow-It-All, Rachel Oaks-Ash. Welcome to our very first Snow's Best podcast. Today's episode is called What Are You So Afraid Of? And it's brought to you by our friends at the North Face. Fear, if you breathe, then you have it, on the mountain and off the mountain. It can be liberating or it can be debilitating, depending on how you approach it. We're chatting today to Winter Olympic mogul skier Britt Cox, free ride world tour and the North Face athlete Janina Kuzma, sports psychologist Taylor Rapley and the Olympic moguls coach Kate Blamey, who's partly responsible for that fabulous gold medal for Australia and Jakara Anthony at the recent Beijing Winter Olympics. We're going to dive deep into fear and how to work with it. Welcome to the Snow's Best podcast, Janina Kuzma, North Face athlete, free ride world tour skier and winter Olympian for New Zealand, but really should be Australia. And now you've, you're doing, well, you're guiding with heli skiing, but you're an accredited NZGMA, did I get that right? NZMGA mountain guide. I guess the big question for you then is what's more terrifying for you, the half pipe or big mountain? Oh, that's a hard one. Both are completely different, I would say, sports um, in a way. So the fear is just completely different from dropping into a half pipe, an icy half pipe, to skiing down a big open run with cliffs and, you know, you're thinking about avalanches. But, yeah, just completely different. So you did a, you did a film with the North Face recently where you went up Mount Tasman and you decided not to go down. Was that because of fear? So I decided not to ski down the Stevenson's Dick Kuwa just because I was actually scared to ski down it because it had not softened up. So yeah, there was definitely that fear in the back of my mind that I could possibly fall and fall into a Bergstrom. At what point though in your career (laughs) did you realise that you can actually say no because of fear? I think it was definitely when I transitioned into skiing halfpipe. You know, free ride was just, you go up to the mountains, you can really express yourself by just skiing big lines and and you could choose how you wanted to to ski those big lines. Whereas in halfpipe, it was, you had to drop in and throw a certain trick and progress to throwing these tricks that were really scary. And that's when the fear, I found it really hard to control that fear. And there was a point where there were, days when I was like, I just could not push through that fear that I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that today. So who trained you on how to work with your fear? When I was training half pipe, we had a few different sports psychs that we worked with. And it was just quite interesting to learn about fear, you know, as it, you know, you look at fear, it's a basic emotion. um, It's, you know, your body's natural response to stress and skiing half pipe and throwing tricks down on a 22 icy wall is stressful and you know that basic fight flight response kicks in and you're like oh should I be doing this I guess it's just working through techniques and skills with my sports psych to help combat that fear and kind of progress through the day and how I was feeling and just kind of treating that fear as information and making sure that that rational decision making was coming through and knowing that I'd work the steps through to make sure that trick was going to happen and it was going to happen safely. So is it understanding data, really? Like is every fall you take or every risk you take a piece of data to help you make your decisions in the next fearful experience? I guess it is because, I mean, you'd work your way up to learning a new trick. You'd start on the trampoline and then you'd progress to the airbag. And once you felt comfortable in the airbag, you'd go find a spot in the half pipe that felt quite safe and and a good spot. And then once you felt comfortable and you pushed that fear aside and, you know, everything was just going to work out and, and happen in that moment. And that was the time it was to drop and to do the trick. And then you land and you're like, ah, so everything was like systematic for the process. It was it was quite a cool process. Sometimes it was difficult to push through that fear. Cool process looking back. Cool process looking back. Sometimes I would be on the deck of the pipe, literally just bawling my eyes out or like 
scream like not screaming but skiing away from my sports like who's like trying to chase me down in the lift line I'm like oh, I don't want to talk to you right now just leave me alone and what was it what was it that had you in tears just not being able to put to get over that fear of throwing a, tr- a new trick but you must have got over it somehow because you ended up at the Olympics I did in the end it's just learning to overcome that fear and and knowing that fear is healthy you know it's just risk that we just need to kind of learn about and understand that everything at the end of the day, after following these steps, it's going to be okay. Is it, how do you feel fear? Do you feel it in your body or do you feel it in your head? Which is more prevalent for you? I would say it was more in my head, the fear, thinking that this, thinking about the outcome and the outcome of crashing and hurting myself and, and that outcome is real. It's, you have crashes in the pipe and you feel that that pain and you just don't want to crash and have that pain set you back for a week or two weeks or a season or a year. But yeah, once I kind of worked with my mental coach and with our sports psych and kind of just worked through good skills that I learned, everything just came together and I was able to throw tricks that I never thought I was able to do or overcome fears from previous crashes that I never thought I would be able to overcome. We worked a lot on mindfulness and we also worked on skills like mindfulness was a really big one. Mm. Just visualization was a big one for me. And I actually used a lot of visualization anyway from free riding. So I felt like that was always such a, a really good, strong skill that I had. But learning mindfulness for me was a big one, just learning to be calm in the situation and making sure all the steps were right with that mindfulness before I dropped in and actually did a trick. And that's something that you can then take into your own life as well, of course, and then into your guiding and into this experience that you had on the top of Mount Tasman when you decided not to ski down. I'm interested in the process of the fear <laughs> process of that because the pressure on you, because you're filming a film for the North Face, you, you've You've put it out there that this is what you're going to do. I guess you didn't give in to fear. You used fear as a risk assessment, did you? Or 100%. So with ski guiding, we have a heuristic approach for a risk assessment when um, heading out to the mountains. What does that mean exactly? So heuristics are simple rules that people use to make decisions about complex events and situations. And we tend to apply these rules frequently and subconsciously. In the outdoors, the rules kind of have to be relevant to the actual hazards and risks for them to be effective. And if they're not, accidents will eventually result. So yeah, the heuristic traps occur when the simple rules we use are influenced by factors not relevant to the actual hazards. So there are like six traps that we think about, uh, familiarity, acceptance, commitment, expert halo, and tracks social proof. So the more familiar you are with the train you travel in, you tend to expose yourself to more risk factors. So Let's say I went up to Mount Tasman and our guide had climbed up Mount Tasman before and he's like, it's okay, this is fine. Whereas there could be really high avalanche risk, but he's been there, it's okay. Acceptance, so facets, so A, acceptance is the desire to fit in or be like the group. C, commitment, we're more likely to expose ourselves to more hazards and instability if we're committed. So on our film trip, I guess that could have been a heuristic trap. We're committed to summit Mount Tasman. We had a film project. We had to film. We had to get something. So when I came down the couloir and put my skis on when it was super icy, I just, I felt like I had to ski the couloir, whereas I actually didn't have to ski it. And I'm so glad Sam yelled out to me to be like, put your skis back on your pack because it's just not worth it. I almost put myself into a trap there. You know, I was so committed to skiing it that I felt like I had to. You were in quite a scary situation earlier on in your career where a friend of yours ended up in avalanche. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So in 2007, I decided to sit an avalanche backcountry awareness course with two of my friends. And then two weeks later, we were actually digging one of our friends who was a photographer out from a deep burial in the backcountry in British Columbia. So we definitely fell into a restrict trap there prior to the days going out. We knew people had been out skiing there. We just thought it was going to be okay. We didn't even question our photographer who said he'd been out there before. We were young. We, I guess, had no fear back then. (laughs) 
we just went out into the mountains thinking everything was going to be okay. And just like that, he was swept down a big avalanche, a, a wind slab avalanche, and was buried almost two meters deep. Wow. And because we got taught this new digging technique that was just brought into the Canadian Avalanche Association, mm-hmm. I believe that we were able to dig him up and and he survived because of that new technique we got taught. It was so much quicker. And yeah, so that's definitely shaped my early days of going out to the backcountry and just making sure who I go out with and, and just making sure I know what's going on and reading all the avalanche danger and yeah, trying not to succumb to those horrific traps. That must have been quite terrifying though at the time. How did you get back into the backcountry after that? Yeah, it was quite hard actually. I I felt like we were always quite I would go out with my friends that actually one of my friends, Ian, who helped me dig Todd out. We would go back into the backcountry together and it was a very stressful situation always. We were always quite angry when we saw other people out in the backcountry with that avalanche gear and you know, we just tried to stick to the slack country to start off with and that was always just so scary. We just always felt like we we're on edge. And yeah, and then we just seemed to move on and get over it and I guess it wasn't until I was swimming in a river in New Zealand and I got hit. I went through some rapids and that just was a switch in my mind that brought back that fear. And and ever since that, I've just been so scared to be in any kind of running water, ocean situation. I just don't like the waves crashing on me. Yeah. And you you were fine with waves prior to this? Yes, 100%. So the wave trauma has been triggered because of the avalanche that you were part of? Totally. It must have brought something back because I was like freaking out in the water and everyone around me was like, what? Are you okay? Like it's just freaking, it's a rapid. And I was just like, whoa, I don't, I didn't even realize what had happened. I was like, okay, that's the first time that I've ever felt any kind of PTSD from, from the avalanche situation. And did you have a flashback of the avalanche when you were in the rapid? No, not a flashback, but definitely a vision of just like the white wash of the snow going down like a wave over my friend Ian, who was bear hugging a tree. Yeah. And then I guess uh, our friend Todd just got swept away. The higher up you go in that in this sport, the higher the risk of, of actually losing people is or people ending up with traumatic injuries that you know, maybe they may be brain injuries, et cetera. And I often wonder how you deal with that kind of post-trauma. What do you do? Yeah, I guess I just try to have a process that I just try not put myself in a situation where I just will not have that happen to me again by just understanding the snow data and understanding what's going on in the avalanche advisory and just making sure that I've got more knowledge about what's going on in the snowpack and in the mountains than what I've had prior. That's how I manage that. Do you think you'll ever understand the mountains? I don't think I'll ever completely understand the mountains. I think they are just, I mean, the mountains are changing all the time. The snowpack's changing all the time. The wind direction is changing all the time. Just kind of as having as much knowledge as I can understand, I guess, will help me understand the mountains more, but I will never really completely understand the mountains. And do you think they make you more of a connected person or a disconnected person emotionally? I would say a more connected person. I think from my experience, hopefully I can share it with more people and get them to get out there and and learn more about traveling in the mountains for themselves so they don't ever have to experience what I've experienced. Who better to talk about fear than sports psychologist Taylor Rapley? She's a psychologist, a mental skills coach, a former alpine pro skier for New Zealand, and now an adventure skier. Have I got that right? Yeah, adventure skier, ski for fun. I don't compete anymore. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how much fun. I mean, a lot of people would look at what you do, and I'm not sure how many of them would see it as fun. I saw some some photos of you on the weekend climbing, you know, practically a vertical wall of snow to get to to some good stuff to ski. Where were you? Yeah, I was actually going up to Single Cone and the Remarkables in Queenstown, and very relevant to the topic today, I was scared. I was with my friend who's a mountaineer, and I was a little bit out of my comfort zone, so that was fun. And what did you do to work with that fear? Well, I just pushed through it. I knew that I was capable enough to get up there. So just kind of welcomed that fear. And that's something we can talk about today. Actually made room for it and just kept climbing with that fear. So, And how did that fear, like I'm interested to know how fear manifests in the body for different people. 
how deep do you want to go? Like, are oh, you interested in let's, let's go deep, Taylor. Let's well, go deep. Like, <laughs> let's go deep. <laughs> yeah, well, the fear, fear is funny. It's all experienced differently by different people, as you know. But it starts in the region of the brain called the amygdala. It's a little walnut-shaped, gooey part of the brain in the frontal lobe. And the purpose of that is to detect the emotional importance of things. Like if something is triggering, if it's actually a threat to us. And when the amygdala perceives threat, we undergo a number of changes in our body that prepare us to be more efficient in that danger. So the brain becomes more hyper alert, the pupils dilate, your breathing accelerates, your heart rate and blood pressure rise. We get a stream of glucose, which is sugar to the muscles and blood flow and organs that aren't vital for survival, like your you know, digestive system slow down. All things that I'm sure listeners can relate to when they're feeling the fear. And all of these things actually help us deal with fear in the moment. So the part of the brain, another really important part of the brain that is connected to how we experience fear is the hippocampus. And that's responsible for memory. And this is a really important part to consider because the amygdala is the emotional part of the brain. The hippocampus is the thinking part of the brain. It's the reasoning. And the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex actually help us or help the brain interpret that perceived threat. So it's involved in like this higher level processing, which actually helps us know, is that threat real? Do I need to react to it? So an example I like to use is an avalanche. So if you are looking at an aspect that you want to ski and you see a big avalanche, you see a big release, and you were just about to ski it, okay? So that can trigger a really strong fear reaction. But the response to an avalanche in a ski movie, for example, would provoke a sense of curiosity and maybe even awe. So while the emotional part of the brain is freaking out at the avalanche on the ski movie, your hippocampus the frontal part of the brain, is processing that information and telling you it's just a movie. Right. So it dampens that fear response. And, you know, our thinking brain reassures your emotional brain that it'll be okay. So it's really dependent on your learned experiences. Can you trick the brain? Like, let's say you're on a mountain and you're you're scared. Can you trick your brain into thinking it's just a movie? Yeah, well, obviously, I think we naturally tend to do that. And it's just kind of checking in and noticing, okay, my, you know, I'm, I'm noticing I'm feeling this stress response, this fear response. What is it that my mind is telling me? Like, what is the context? And actually asking yourself some questions and reasoning with it a little bit and just kind of figuring out, like, what evidence do I have for this anticipated threat? You know, what evidence do I have against it? What's the worst case? what's the chance of worst case? What's the best case? What's the chance of best case? And what's in my control? And what do I need to do to execute it? And actually breaking it down because when we're caught up in that emotional response, it can sort of take over and it can shut down that frontal part of the brain, making it really hard for us to reason. Is that like being triggered? Yes, that is a big trigger. That is like being triggered. So I guess before you would want to go into reasoning, you'd actually want to like, what's the opposite of escalate? De-escalate. De-escalate. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that's a word. but <laughs> Just put a D in front of it, yeah. Yeah, D, un-escalate, whatever we want it to be, is to actually calm the nervous system because when your nervous system is in that heightened state of arousal, that heightened state of stress, it becomes really, really, really hard to think our way out of a problem. And I'm sure listeners can relate to that if they're in a situation where they're triggered and all of a sudden they resort to behaving like a five-year-old or their body shuts down or athletes talk about it like, you know, I was skiing and I felt really rigid and tense and I looked at myself and I was like, that wasn't me skiing, like it was someone else. So it's important that you can use your body then to bring your nervous system down so that you can use your thinking mind. And we can do that through like breathing techniques, for example. So when you're triggered emotionally talking to somebody who pushes your buttons or you're in an experience where you're now in this heightened state of of fight or flight or fear arousal and, and what's actually happened in front of you is 
So nowhere near the level of reaction that you're actually having, the reality of what's happened versus versus your reaction and, and, and you've suddenly gone back to somewhere else in your life, as you said, back to a five-year-old. Yeah. That whole thought process of, of having to go through all of that is really, really tough when you're in fight or flight. Absolutely. And then when you're on a mountain and you're about to tackle, maybe you're a green run skier and you're about to tackle a blue run for the first time and your head blue is like, uh, what do you do? So traditionally in performance psychology, what do I do? Okay, let's be positive. Let's um, try and feel confident. Let's get rid of those negative thoughts. But what we're finding in, in new research is supporting this is that that tendency to push away those negative thoughts. Say the negative thought you're having is, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm going to crash. I'm going to do my knee again, whatever it is. And our tendency is to push those thoughts away push them away, repress them, suppress them, and distract ourselves with more positive thoughts. But what we're finding is that can sometimes make those unwanted thoughts even more intense and more distracting. So if I told you right now, like, do not think of a white polar bear. Think of a big fluffy white polar bear. If I tell you, do not think about crashing, you think about crashing. So instead of in that fear response, actually trying to push away those negative thoughts, you first need to be aware, well, what are those thoughts I'm having? in the first place, that is fundamental. What is my mind telling me? I'm feeling scared because of my perception of this experience. So what is my mind telling me about it? The second step would be to notice and name that thought and rather than pushing it away, actually just accept it for what it is. It's your brain trying to protect you from a threatening experience. Do you need to listen to it in that instance or do you not? Well, that's the question. But you're not, you're not trying to push it away. Okay. Does that make sense? You're not trying to push it away. So then what you do is do some breathing, for example. Calm your nervous system down a little bit. And then you can go back to the thinking brain and reason with it, just like we spoke about before. So what is my mind telling me? What evidence do I have for this? What evidence do I have against it? Actually reasoning with your emotional brain using your thinking brain. Because when you're in that emotional state, you can't reason it. So you need to bring your nervous system down through breathing, for example, and then you can reason it. So that's one technique. There's another technique I'd like to share. I call it emotional imagery. So it's really about learning how to take these unwanted emotions, bring them in and make room for them. We've been raised to fear unwanted experiences so if we're feeling anxious we've been raised to go oh we need to undo that if we're feeling angry or we need to get away from that if we're feeling scared oh i need to get away from this and that avoidance and that resistance often makes the emotion a lot more scary than it needs to be so there is a process um, called experiential acceptance where you actually teach people how to make room for this unwanted experience and then by doing that the emotion becomes way less intimidating and you can see it for what it is rather than this big scary thing that you have to get away from. Because often when we feel an emotion like fear, whether it's fear on snow, whether it's fear, anxiety in response to life and relationships and stresses, like we tend to want to get away from it and we're really afraid of those feelings and that fear, that avoidance, that resistance often makes those feelings so much more intense and I like to imagine my emotions my let's call them negative emotions as like these little bullies or these little kind of gremlins and when I'm ignoring them and pushing them away they just want to bite back they're like oh this is fun (laughs) this is a game I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck up your life but if I actually go like you know what like you're allowed to be here I'm safe to feel this feeling I see you it's okay I know why you're here and I'm safe I imagine those little gremlins just going like, oh, oh, that's nice. Okay, well, now I'm going to go and annoy someone else. How do you do that with athletes? How do you do that with athletes that you're coaching for elite level? It's really teaching people that they are not their thoughts, they are not their emotions, that you can have a negative thought and not let that negative thought determine how you behave and how you experience the situation. Um, and that's a big part of my approach. For anyone listening, it's um, an act-centered framework so acceptance commitment therapy rather than your traditional change-based therapy of relentlessly trying to control (laughs) and change thought processes which we all know can be bloody tough sometimes especially when we're in that threat response i love that you do this is what did you call it acceptance commitment therapy or 
Yeah, acceptance yeah. commitment therapy. So it's um, but it's actually they they call it ACT ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a good book by Russ Harris called The Happiness Trap, and he yes. he really like, I guess in a non non sport context, sort of like talks on some of those more complex theories and how how you can sort of embody those day to day. Well, I think you've done a really great job of of, of condensing it all for us today. This episode is supported by the North Face. The North Face fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966. Just provide the best gear for athletes and the modern day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors and inspire a global movement of exploration. Now, more than 55 years after its humble grand opening, the North Face delivers an extensive line of performance apparel, equipment and footwear. They push the boundaries of innovation so that you can push the boundaries of exploration. With me now is a woman who is no stranger to fear, Olympic moguls coach Kate Blamey and one of the two coaches responsible for Chikara Anthony's gold medal at Beijing and also a huge part of Britt Cox's past four years since Pyeongchang to Beijing and up to her retirement. Thanks, Kate, for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, No problem. Excited to be here. Well, we hear that you are the fear specialist. So what are you most afraid of? Oh, that's a good question. I would say the 10-meter diving platform, I've never been able to jump off that one. I get to the 7-meter and I'm fine. Anything above that, just no, I, I freak out. Is it heights? I'm okay at a tall building or on top of things, but jumping off big heights, I would say, yes. That's funny because you were a mogul skier yourself and you do have to jump off things as a mogul skier. How did you get past that fear? Yeah, honestly, that was a tough part of my training um, as an athlete. And I think that's where, because I had a, a tough time with jumping and fear, I'm able to help athletes because I do understand it. Definitely fear was, was a tough part of my career as a mogul skiing athlete. Do you think it's something easier to teach getting over fear or getting through fear or getting fear to work with you than to actually do yourself? Yeah, maybe. I think it's both. I think it's easier to sit on the other side of the fence and advise, but to, when you're in that in that fearful state, it is difficult. But I think if you have the tools in place, you can. So maybe I should challenge myself and jump <laughs> off that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'd like to say, and send us a photo when you actually do it. Can you video yeah, it? We'll yeah. create a reel for you on Insta. Okay. We asked some of our community what they're actually scared of on the slopes. And a lot of them do actually say they're scared of heights. They're scared of ice. They're scared of those really small, narrow little traverse tracks. Some of them are scared of other skiers and snowboarders with music pumping out of their ears. One of them says they're scared of not being good enough. How do you overcome those kind of fears? I think it's about breaking it down and really identifying what the issue is there. So in terms of people, are you scared of being hit on the slopes by other people or ice? What is it about the ice? Are you scared of falling over and and kind of breaking it down and identifying really what are you afraid about about it and then how best to overcome it in terms of, well, then how do we minimize that? risk or issue you may have with it and just yeah break it down talking about it sometimes is is honestly the best place to start and you know to understand that you are a capable skier you can ski on ice if you're around skiing around people and you're you're fearful of them what what's the best thing to do and you know to always you know and at the right of way and people you know, down the hill, have the run weight, little things like that. And and I would say most of the time, just talking through it with other people is, is the first step. That ice thing, though, that's quite scary because I think the fear of ice is the fear of slipping and then being out of control because how do you get yourself back up on ice once you're flailing? It's very, very hard. I think a lot of us have experienced that and only come to a standstill once we've hit the bottom of that particular <laughs> yes. slope. I'm interested to know what you think of whether there are particular fear elements that are a common theme amongst skiers and snowboarders or particularly athletes that you've trained or whether it's a case of nurture and how you've been brought up impacts what you're scared of. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a a level, there's common themes. Um, You know, if there is a change in environment, as we talked about ice, visibility or the difficulty for us, you know, a mogul course, if we get there and it's steeper or the the landings are firmer or the bumps are icier, there's definitely that level of fear that can come in for an athlete. So probably around the environment, there's a part for that for our athletes. And then you've also got that performance side. So 
you know, if they're learning a new skill, acrobatic skills a lot, we see that when we're transferring them from water, our water ramps to snow. Obviously on water, you can land on your head and you're okay. And that's definitely not something you want to do on snow. So with that transfer of new skills and performing them comes a level of fear. And then of course, you've got your competition performance, wanting to perform at your best on the world stage or at an event that's really important to you and you've worked so hard for the last year. You know, the fear of failure definitely can come in to athletes' minds sometimes. Okay. So what you were talking about tools that you offer athletes to address their fears while on the mountain and on the mogul course, what kind of tools are they that can actually apply to your regular skier and snowboarder? Yeah, so there's definitely the mental and the physical side. So the mental side, breaking it down, identifying what the issue might be, what you're fearful of and why. Is it fear of hurting yourself, fear of scary, the ice is scary, you're okay, and then understanding what might happen if it does go wrong. Is it is it actually a scary and unknown what happens and then what you can do. So giving them the mental skills to say, to be confident, to own it, to say, I am a good enough skier to be in the present moment and to tackle it and have that confidence. So there's different tools in terms of that, of the mental side. And then I think the physical side too is is a really important one and environmental. And that's a lot what we do with our athletes is to break it down and go, okay, so you're scared of this run. Why? Because it's steep, because it's icy, because of the moguls that are there. Okay, so if we can remove one of them away and actually practice and train on an icy run, but it's not icy and it's steep. You know, and so build your confidence up on an icier run that you might not be as confident with, but then it's not as steep. So you can build that confidence and then come to the realization that, oh, I'm actually, I'm capable of this. I can do this. And when I am on the ice, I just need to make sure, you know, I do A, B and C as a result. So I think there's a big piece in breaking the skill down or what you might be afraid of. Um, That's definitely something we do a lot with the athletes. So you know, we might be working on trying to jump bigger, but, and so we'll go, all right, let's take one little step up. All right, do five at that. Now let's go again. And it's definitely, there's no hero and everyone's different. You know, there's just because athlete A might be progressing at a faster rate, it's all happening at different times. And it's what you need as a person, as a skier and your confidence and your physical level, what, what you can tackle at. But it's definitely important to break it down and just There's all these scary things. Just focus on one piece and do it multiple times, multiple times, and then take that next step and work on the next piece. It takes time, (laughs) lots of practice and time. Yeah, and of course, except that fear is different for everyone. You mentioned controllables as well. You said that there was uh, earlier about seven judges. You can't control what the judges are seeing. And what did you say you do with Jakara or you did with Jakara before she won the gold medal in Beijing to help allay her fears? Yeah, honestly, she didn't really have any fears at the top of Beijing. She knew she was as cool as a cucumber, to be honest. Um, she, but she has, you know, all athletes and Jakara, you know, have had fear in the past. And it is about breaking it down and just reminding them that they, they've got it and, and this is what you need to do. And, and it might just be a couple of cues of what they need to think about, eyes up or, or whatever it may be. But I think with athlete and coaches, especially, we have such a, a tight bond. There's a lot of trust, honesty, and respect in that relationship. So the athletes know that we would never ask anything of them if we don't think they're capable of it. And that's something really big. And so, you know, sometimes I might just remind an athlete, I believe in you, you've got this. And then they know because we would never sign them up to do anything that we don't believe they're capable of. And I think that comes back to the relationship that a coach and an athlete have. So also it's about believing yourself going, I believe, because I don't have you next to me on the ski slopes, do I? So I believe in you, Rachel, oh, you've got this. Self-belief right? and confidence is more important than anything else. It is, it is the number one tool you need to take with you to the slopes. It doesn't matter. You need all the pieces of the pie. You need the physical, you need the mental and All of it is just so important, but you can't have one without the other. It's interesting, though, the way we approach our skiing and snowboarding or how we approach a mountain, because I often think it's not dissimilar to the way we approach our own lives. Oh, for sure. Do you witness that? Do you witness that with your athletes? Like, do some of them have quirks off the mountain that that they appear to still have on the mountain? (laughs) Things like that? Yeah, yeah, they do. And whether it's their fears as well, they tend to probably pop up in, in life too, you know, fear of 
failing at school or, or in career might also come up when they're, they're thinking about competition and performance or uh, they're perfectionist in their training. They're also a perfectionist. You'll walk into an athlete's room and it's very clean and neat and, and vice versa. Some athletes like to just wing it and not have a plan and, and a little bit more fly by the seat of their pants. And then it's the same off and that's what works for them. So I think right now or we had 13, 12 athletes on the team the last two years and each of them are very different. You know, I don't coach any of them the same. They're all very different. How would you define fear? Is it physical? Is it mental? I think it's both and it pops up in different ways with different people and it's, you know, it doesn't, it comes in all shapes and sizes, I believe. I really do. And even for you know, our top Olympians, they also experience it um, as do, you know, when I've taught family friends how to ski for the first time. So I think it, and to the point where it pretty much pops up the same for both candidates. So it definitely is different, you know, for everyone, um, but the same at the same time. (laughs) We're joined now by Winter Olympic mogul skier, and all-round FIS World Cup legend, Australian skier, Britt Cox. Now, we had a little chat yesterday, pre-chat, and you were mentioning that once upon a time you looked at your results, and let's be honest, there were 16 FIS World Cup podiums, nine golds. How many world championships and, and Crystal Globes did you win? Uh, yeah, so two world championship medals, one of them being gold, and uh, the overall freestyle crystal globe and the overall mogul skiing crystal globe amazing both in the same season absolutely phenomenal you were saying yesterday that you would look at that and you would only see that as information and data as to how to make yourself better as opposed to looking at it as wow i've I've actually achieved something and has that changed yeah, I think in the past when I've reflected on my career it's it's always been in an sort of like an analytical sense. So I'll look at it and go, "Oh yeah, I'm stoked. I checked that goal, but you know, what what next and what am I working on next?" It's almost like my mind immediately goes to what's my next goal because I've always wanted to challenge myself to become the best mogul skier in the world, the best I can possibly be at the sport. So it's like, all right, yeah, cool, I did that, but what do I do now? What am I looking forward to in the future? Um, but when after I announced my retirement last week, actually looked back on my career and and it was the first time I'd actually looked back without having something to be then without, without having another mogul skiing competition to then be working towards moving forward um apart from the able mogul challenge of course but mm. I I then was able to just appreciate it for what it was and for what I'd done and uh, it felt really good and I, I really um I really like for the first time ever genuinely felt proud of what I have been able to achieve in the sport. Um, Do you think it's difficult for all athletes to actually be in the moment when they win something? Uh, I think it's diff- it depends on the athlete. It really does depend on the athlete and what their goals are within the sport and also what motivates them, what what is their why behind what they're doing. Um, and for me it was very much about challenging myself to become better all the time, always improving and, and um, trying to get the best out of what I could do. And, yeah, so I think for me that was probably a part of it. I did try and enjoy it in the moment uh, when I did tick off those goals along the way but very quickly moved on to what was the next thing. So whereas now it's like I just I can look back on it exactly for what it is or what it was. With your why, would you then say that your biggest fear was that you wouldn't be number one or that you wouldn't improve with each competition? Um, this is really interesting. Uh, I think for every athlete that is probably in the background somewhere that the fear of not reaching your goals. Um, and for me, like I, I remember watching Elisa Camplin win the gold in Salt Lake city 2002. And from then on, that was, that was really what inspired me to chase my dreams as a, a winter sport athlete was watching her and me going, that is so cool. She is awesome. And I was like, that's it. I just, I want to be the best in the world at something at some point in my life. I didn't know what sport at the time. I just knew that that's, I wanted to be in that position. And, you know, it ended up being, mogul skiing ended up being my sport of choice. And for me, I, I did reach that point 
in my career where I was the best in the world at it and winning the world championships and being the tour leader for a season was that. But I also, you know, I, I, I was dreaming of that Olympic gold medal from the, the age of about eight years old. Like every night I wanted it more than I wanted to breathe. And so when that didn't happen in Pyeongchang, I was, I was heartbroken and I was gutted. And I came home and it was like, I had to really do a lot of soul searching, digging deep. And I reflected back on why I wanted to do that in the first place. And it was always because I wanted to have an impact. I wanted to inspire other people, especially those young, you know, eight-year-old girls like Elisa had done for me, inspire them to chase after their dreams and become the best they can possibly be at something or whatever they set their mind to, whether that be sport, music, academics, anything, just to, to challenge themselves to grow and to learn. And so, I, I, you know, I went back to that. That's why I did this in the first place. And that sort of going back to that is what I focused on a lot in the last four years leading into the Beijing Olympics. Um, and it felt really true to me and true to myself. And when I retired last week, I had so many beautiful messages from people kids even saying, I do this, I do mogul skiing because of you. You've inspired me to start the sport or parents as well saying, oh, my, my kids are, you know, thank you for inspiring my kids to do this. And for me, that was like, it was so heartwarming and it made me really feel like, well, actually I didn't need to win the gold medal to have the impact that I wanted to, you know, I, I was able to achieve what I wanted to um, in a different way to what I probably had thought. In, well, I, in the first I guess in a way you were forced to face your fear because your biggest fear was that you weren't going to get a gold medal and you weren't going to get a medal at the Olympics. Yeah, I think my biggest fear was that I wasn't going to make a difference really. Um, and, you know, I even I even probably felt that like in the last couple of years, am I, am I making a difference? Are these, you know, kids wanting to do the sport? And then, you know, after Beijing I realised like I actually did make the difference. I didn't need to have – you know, the shiny piece of metal to do that. And that was was really nice. There's not that sort of sense of fear for me when I'm skiing. And I think that's because I have done so much work on mental skills and mental head space. Um, it's probably more when I'm lying in bed at night, you know, that kind of thing. And for me, I when I get in the start gate, I know that the only thing – that I can do. The only thing that's going to make me achieve what I'm setting up myself out to do in those moments is to be present and to be where my feet are and to ski. And that's something I worked on relentlessly since I was you know, probably 17 and um, started working on mental skill stuff. I, I consider myself a bit of a student of the sport. I'm a bit of a geek. I have a stack of books next to my bed like this that's on you know, mental skills and sports psychology and visualization, yoga, meditation, all the, the tips and tricks for performance on demand. So when I'm in the start gate, I'm focused on that. And and I also have learned through that process um, that it's not about getting rid of the fear or getting rid of the worries or the thoughts. Like they're going to pop up. Fear is, I think, is a, a very natural response to threat. It's, you know, our bodies are biologically hardwired to respond to threat so when that fear happens i've learned to be like okay that's just my body doing what it's meant to be doing it's working well but now what do i do with it and for me it's like well okay in this situation with what i want to do maybe that fear is not helpful so i'm going to redirect my attention towards what i'm doing right now and that's okay my feet are and clicked into my skis my boots clicked into my skis i'm here i'm going to push out of the gate and just be really present in the moment. Um, and for me to be able to get to that place, I generally use a lot of yoga type techniques, like meditation, um, breathing, pranayama, visualization, um, and then just generally taking in my environment around me. So that's what I do when I'm in the start gate every single time, whether that be the Avon Mogul Challenge or the start gate of the Olympics. Um, that's my process and that's what I like to stick to. That sounds exhausting. Easier said than done, and it's not the same every time. Some days it takes a lot more effort to get to that place than other days, um, and it, I think that's been part of the learning process is knowing like, it's not going to be perfect every day and it's learning to perform or you know, get yourself into a good mental state to be able to perform despite everything that's going on around you. 
I guess that's the same for your average skier and snowboarder being on snow is that we constantly beat ourselves up that, you know, we've spent however many gazillions of dollars on a lift pass and here we are like not able to perfect our turns on a particular day. But really it's about giving yourself a break and realising you're on holidays. Yeah, and that it's going to be different every day. There's different snow conditions and, you know, you, you could book a holiday for a week up on Appet Falls and you, you'd imagined it all year being like it's going to be bluebird and powder every day. That's what's in your mind and you get there and um, it's a whiteout or it's icy and you, you're like, oh, I've only got six days here. I want to make most of it, but you're a little bit scared because it's icy and it's like, well, okay, this you've got to accept you can't change that. You can't control that. But what are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to be here where my feet are. I'm going to ski to the conditions and so on and so forth. And it's, I guess yeah, there's a bit of an acceptance there, I think. Now, I'm curious because you had a pretty terrifying accident and you said you don't remember any of it. Can you talk us through what actually happened? Yeah. So 2019, end of 2019, I uh, competed the first World Cup of the season in Ruka, Finland. I had a great run, stoked, ended up on the podium and, yeah, I was really happy. I was like, great start to the season. And the next event we went to China for a World Cup and, unfortunately, during the competition in China, I had a big crash after the top jump, landed forward, uh, went to head and chest first into the ground, made impact, and then I slid head first for about 70 metres, hitting every mogul with my head on the way down. Um and I, yeah, I don't remember the crash. I remember being the start gate, and then I remember set, when I woke, when I came to, came consciously, and remember hearing a few things, but I didn't remember seeing anything until I was in the hospital. Um, you know, a couple of hours later, so I broke my collarbone and six ribs. It was obviously a concussion, um, and was. Yeah, a, a scary, a scary accident. Probably more scary for my family who were watching it live back home and didn't really know what what had happened. Were you scared when you got back on? Because did you actually? You, I think you actually looked. Yeah, you did watch the accident at one stage, didn't you? Yeah, I only ever watched. I've only ever watched that crash once, and that was the morning after it happened. Um, the physio showed it to me just to see if I did, if it jogged my memory, if I did remember anything. Um, I didn't, I don't ever want to watch it again, to be honest, um, and I didn't remember anything. But a lot of people ask me, like, oh, you know, you're going to be scared to get back on the snow and that kind of thing. Um, but I think I actually, not not being able to remember it is probably quite helpful and it's. I find that really fascinating, the way the brain does that to protect you. Um, and so by the time I got back on snow, I I felt quite comfortable. I did a lot of visualization just with my training and also just coming back to what we spoke on earlier is literally just being present, being focused on what I'm doing in the moment and my, my process, which is something that I, I practice, I would practice daily on the hill and training anyways, you know, you're on the, on the hill and all of a sudden it creeps into your mind, oh, this, you know, um, it's really icy today or, um, the jump is, it feels different to yesterday or something like that. And, when I notice those thoughts come up, it's not about trying to stop them. It's about recognizing that they're there and then going, okay, right, what am I actually doing? Is thinking about that helping me or is thinking about the way I'm going to approach the jump because it is more kicky or less kicky. And um, basically just the way I imagine it is filling my mind so much with the thoughts of what I'm doing in the moment that there's no space for those worry thoughts to be there anymore. So like, yeah, they come in and then like, they bounce back out again. That's kind of how I am. So what are you scared of now? Oh, what am I scared What's of? What's your biggest now? fear now? Hmm. Good question. I haven't actually thought that far ahead now. Um, transition, probably transition to the life outside of sport. I've been an athlete. I've been on the development team since I was 13 and the national team since I was 15 um, and, you know, skiing since I – could walk when I ripped the wedgies off my skis so I didn't have to snowplow. So I guess that's a, it's very natural to have any kind of fear or worry of the unknown, of the change, of anything that's different. Um, but I do think that my experiences as a skier have um, given me some skills that I can use to help me with this transition and it's very much a lot of the stuff we were talking about, that acceptance and knowing that, yeah, I'm probably that's normal if I'm scared of, what's on the other side of being an athlete 
it's okay to be scared and I just got to accept that and then go, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do now? And what's, um, what's in for the future? What's in, what's in my, in my control moving forward? You know, a lot of athletes really struggle once they come out of the elite competition with what they're going to do. And, and, you know, I mean, while you're an elite athlete and particularly someone like you, people are falling at your feet, telling you how fantastic you are. You're on a winning streak. You're an absolute legend. And then you join the rest of the world with us. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> now what? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also, I think there's two ways you can look at it. And I know mm-hmm. I feel both, I feel both terrified and really excited. Um, because yeah, I haven't it's it's new. There's a lot of um, yes, a lot of changes in my life and differences and things that I'm going. I'm definitely going to miss. There's so much, especially my team and um, and the thrill of competition. But there's also stuff that I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to new challenges. I do like as I was saying earlier to to challenge myself and to learn and. Um, you know, there's more opportunities to do that, more opportunities to spend time with my family and my friends, uh, a lot less missed weddings and birthdays and things like that. So um, I guess, yeah, there's there's positives and negatives to it as there is with most, most things in life. Um, and I think using those mental skills that I have developed through skiing and learning about fear, um, I'll just try and apply them as best I can moving forward because that's I think that's all any of us can do. Well, thanks so much for your time, Britt. I really look forward to seeing what you get up to in the next couple of years um, and uh, applying your fear suggestions to my next run down an icy slope. Thank you very much. Always great chatting with you, Rach, and uh, I love what you're doing for for winter sports in Australia and around the world and uh, especially women in winter sports. And that concludes our very first episode of the Snow's Best podcast. I hope you got something out of it to help you address fear both on and off the mountain. With special thanks to the North Face, who made this episode possible. Expanding from a single storefront in San Francisco, the North Face brand has been revolutionising outdoor gear and inspiring a global movement of exploration for nearly 50 years. Built on innovation, the North Face brand offers unrivaled, technically advanced outdoor products designed for everyone from the most accomplished accomplished climbers, mountaineers, snow sports athletes, that's us, and endurance athletes to novice explorers in search of adventure. Thanks for listening to the Snow's Best Podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Like at Miss Snow It All on socials and hit up the snowsbest.com website for everything you need to know snow.